Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, I speak with Peter Vandermeid about artificial intelligence and the brain chip. But first up, here's the news. The war on science continues in Australia. Australia's enjoying its 22nd year of economic growth, so the Liberal National Coalition Federal Government has announced that it's raising the debt ceiling. And that the Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, world famous for such profitable inventions as Wi-Fi, will lose nearly a quarter of their staff. The measures were called a hiring freeze, to disguise the fact that 1,400 CSIRO employees are employed on contracts that end if they're not renewed by rehiring them. The Public Service Commission ordered departmental bosses not to hire, renew or extend any temporary contracts or casual positions, and to begin sacking non-ongoing workers. No ministers come forward to defend CSIRO. Prime Minister Tony Abbott is also taking candy from babies by abolishing the Advisory Panel on the Marketing in Australia of Infant Formula and the National Intercountry Adoption Advisory Council. However, I'm sure many Australians will feel safer now that he has abolished the National Steering Committee on Corporate Wrongdoing. Vandermeid is the Chief Technical Officer and Chief Scientist of BrainChip Incorporated. He's designed and built a chip based on the way the brain works, by modelling brain cells with transistors. His brain chips are designed to learn, and this could form the basis of an artificial intelligence revolution. Peter spoke to me in the Redfern studio of the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia and showed me the prototype of his brain chip. Well, traditional computers are very good at uh, calculating things, at, uh, at doing spreadsheets and Word and things like that. But they're not very good at recognizing things. They're not very good at, well, they don't think. Ah, so is there potential that these chips could think and learn? They definitely learn. And with learning comes intelligence. All intelligence is learned. So as the chip is, uh, is learning over time, at first, the learning will be very limited because we're only talking about 10,000 neurons, but eventually we'll have a, a 1 million neuron chip. So there's a few things to unpack there for the listeners. First, what is intelligence? Yes, that's a very good question. Intelligence has uh, often been misstated. 
intelligence is not the ability of a computer to do what a human being can do. Because then a thermostat would be intelligent, because a thermostat is uh, regulating the temperature in a room, and well, a human being can do that too. Intelligence is, is the ability to learn, to learn and acquire knowledge, and then apply that knowledge in new situations. So the aim is machine intelligence? Yes. Now, by intelligence, are you looking at artificial intelligence in the sort of traditional sense that's being used now, or are you looking at a different kind of machine intelligence? We're looking at a total, totally different kind of, of, of intelligence. If you're looking at machine intelligence as it is, is used today, it's not intelligence. You know, a smartphone is not smart, and, a, and intelligent brakes have no intelligence whatsoever. Artificial intelligence is a bit of a denominator. It's, in, it's artificial, but it's not intelligence. They're control systems. They control a machine. In our case, we are not looking at controlling. We're we looking at learning, and learning will result in controlling rather than programming. So these are systems that will be trained instead of programmed? That's correct, yes. We uh, have a chip at the moment, an FPGA, in the field program, Gate Array. That chip can be instructed to learn how to interpret noise of sounds. Wow. So there can, instead of an army of programmers in the future, there could be an army of teachers? That's correct, yes. A whole new profession? A whole new profession. We, we might even see a computer or intelligent machine psychologists. <laughs> so you're modeling the neurons, the brain cells. How does a neuron work? What sort of things are you copying the function of? A neuron works uh, by, by, it receives pulses. Uh, all sensory information is, is pulses, whether it's sight or sound or tactile feeling, anything that, that, that we experience is communicated to the brain as pulses. Those pulses um, are interpreted in, the, in different ways. The interval between pulses, the uh, number of pulses that follow each other, the intensity of pulses, the, um, um, the neurotransmitter, which is the chemical that communicates the pulses, and the, um, the strength of the synapse, how many, how many vesicles there are present in the synapse, determine the value of the, of the receptor. And for people who aren't so familiar, what is a synapse on a neuron? A synapse is a tiny little dot on a... A synapse is, is, is an extremely small dot on a, uh, on a neuron that connects to the next neuron, or the, really to the previous neuron. That neuron, um, when that neuron fires, or the uh, sensory, uh, like the skin, for instance, gets touched, it generates a pulse that travels down the, um, the axon to the, to the neuron. It causes the, the process that I just talked about, the, uh, the, the um, tra transfer of neurotransmitter into the synaptic cleft, and eventually the, um, the level of, 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 the, uh, of the neuron is raised to a level where it, where it triggers, where it gives an output. Uh, when that happens, it has recognized a certain pattern. So the synapses act to network the neuron to other neurons. Yes, and, and they're also get, memory. And they're also memory. Yeah. So the architecture of, a, of the brain is very different from a computer. In a computer, you have a separate memory module. In the brain, input takes place into memory, and then the neuron integrates that memory. And there are various projects around the world that are trying to copy the architecture of the human brain. And the ones I'm aware of are analog because the human brain is analog. But that's not the case with your project. The human brain is not entirely an analog. The pulses that are uh, 
sent out by, by neurons, are actually digital. They are either on or off. The voltage or the potential of the, of the dendrite, the receptor area, that is analog. Now we interpret that by generating values from the pulse stream, rather than converting the pulse stream from, from digital to analog and then interpreting the analog value, we uh, just keep everything digital. It sounds like it'd be easier to manufacture too with current techniques. Absolutely. The, uh, this chip can be made today. The 10,000, the, even the 50,000 neuron chip uh, can be made today if we have a, had enough money. The, uh, the more neurons we put on a chip, the more expensive the chip is because the mask will be 28 nanometers rather than 45 nanometers. It's for like five, six times the price. And how does the number of neurons on these, well, on the first of the chips that will come out compare to the number in the brain? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's only a small fraction. The brain has got hundreds, or nearly 100 billion neurons. Uh, we can do 10,000 on a, on a chip. But we plan to go to a, chi a chip in 2020 that will have some 1 million neurons. Now, we only need 10,000 of those, of those chips to create a human brain, but we may not need to do the entire human brain. If you look at uh, a parrot, for instance, uh, there was a parrot called Alex, and I met uh, Dr. Peppenberg, who trained that parrot. Uh, a parrot could count number of blocks. It could tell you what color they were. It could uh, make decisions like wanting to go back to, back to its cage. These are very intelligent decisions. If you can do that with a parrot brain, which is only like 40 grams, <laughs> a fraction of the human brain, we can do useful things with smaller chips. Absolutely. And one of the other advantages of your brain chip design is that the things that the chips learn, they don't have to learn from scratch. That's right, yes. Because it has a microprocessor interface, the learned task can be copied into a library and they can be reused. So instead of designing every new application from the ground up, we can just take the information that has been learned by previous chips and copy it to new chips and get those chips to learn again. So as, as the chips get larger and larger, they're able to learn more and more complex tasks and we, um, we can reuse the tasks from previous, from pre previous models. That sounds amazingly powerful. So that means that these artificial little brains will be able to just take advantage of the skills learned by their predecessors or by other brains on the other side of the world yeah. and build on them. And in fact, what, would the same thing go for their memories? Because the memories are their learning? The, the memories are what they have learned, yes. Uh, everything in the brain is stored in synapses. And we have full access to the synapses of the artificial brain. And therefore, we can copy whatever experiences these, these chips have. So people could perhaps look at a whole library of skills and pick which ones they need their device to do. Yes, that's correct. Yes, we, I envision that we'll be working in the same way that the dynamic linking libraries are working now. If you're developing a Windows application, you don't have to work out how to add a character to the, to the screen. You just call a, a function in the library. And that's exactly the same. This is going to work. You just, if you want to walk a, a set of robot legs, you don't have to teach the chip how to do that. You just go to the library, pull out the, the walking routine and download it into the chip. One of the first applications that we want to do is to build sensory networks, intelligent sensory networks. Uh, similar chips could also be used in toys to make a very smart Furby, for instance, that can interact with children. 
So th th those things are the, uh, the easier applications. If we're looking at artificial cochlear um, uh, implantable devices, they're 10 years down the line, simply because you need to prove that the technology is uh, uh, fit to be implanted in people. I've been reading about devices for transplant recently, and they were saying in the US you only, well, you didn't have to prove things were effective, just safe. It may be a little bit easier, but it's still a long, a long path. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Well, we've gone from collecting you know, gigabytes to, to petabytes to just ridiculous amounts of data. NASA collects huge volumes of data, so much they have to work out what they're going to throw away each day. Yes. As storage gets better, all of that data needs to be analysed for patterns. It seems like this is exactly what these chips would be fantastic for. Yes, absolutely. That's what its, it's main application is, is, is recognition. And it doesn't need to be programmed to recognise. It teach, You teach these things what you want it to recognise. And so if we have computers that learn, if we have machines that learn, it seems that they would replace more and more jobs. Yeah, well, that's an, 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 um, an effect that's taken place in every new technology. When computers came in, all the people who were doing manual administration were suddenly out of a job and they had to either retrain or be unemployed. That is a shift that's taken place. If you now look at how many people are employed in the information technology, we can't imagine that the technology wouldn't exist. And it will be exactly the same with the, with the, um, with the brain chips. As we and they're definitely going to happen because everybody's working on it in the United States. As you know, Intel is working on it. Uh, Microsoft has mentioned things. Uh, uh, there's uh, things like Brain Corporation. Uh, there's there's heaps of people who are working on this technology. In the in the last uh, since 2008, it seems the, the whole field seems to have exploded. Fortunately, we have our patents before that time. The thing is that this technology is going to occur. So people will will need to retrain to do different things. Sounds like there's an awful lot of jobs at the moment that we really do need to replace people. That there were there were stories on the news recently that there's still slavery, that we still have all these forced laborers, and a lot of the factories are not really automated where we're used to thinking of them as automated. So it sounds like we can actually automate all the horrible jobs. We could, yes. Uh, underground mining, we could automate uh, exploration if we're sending things into space. Uh, that uh, no. That will take years to get there. We don't need to send people. We could send machines that are trained to do things. So we could actually have the robots from science fiction. Yes, that's what we're... I would love to see it happen in my lifetime that we built a, a C-3PO. And so we could have an army of these doing all this work and creating wealth for society. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So it's very disruptive. It's very disruptive. And people will have a lot more spare time on their hands. So if you're making chips that are like brains, does this mean that perhaps once you've got the the prosthetic side of it worked out that you might be able to replace parts of the brain that get damaged? Yes, that's one of the things that we, uh, we've been looking at. Uh, the Theodore Berger in University of Southern California um, is, is working in this direction, is to look at two parts of the brain may still be functioning, but there's a bit of damaged tissue in the middle. Now, if we can cut that bit of damaged tissue out and replace it with our chip, then that human being would function again like, without any, any handicap. The right. same with, uh, same with the spinal cord injuries. Um, remove the bit that's damaged, 
and connect the nerves up from both ends to the chip. So there's huge potential there for replacing all sorts of nervous damage in the body. Yes. Yeah. But that's a very long path to get to the point where you can implant these chips into people. That will take maybe 10, 15 years. Right. Because not only do you have to, well, I guess you have to teach it to put the same outputs as the organs that you're replacing. No, you don't have to teach it because it will teach itself. You just have to expose it to the uh, to the um, um, to the um, output of the nerves, and it will learn from sensory input. In what way is this new type of intelligence very different? Like, if you give people an, an idea, you've mentioned that it's very good at pattern recognition. Yeah. Is is there any other aspects of it that would give people an idea of just how much different it is from what we've got now? Yes. Current systems do pattern recognition by being programmed. This system does not get programmed. There's no facilities for programming. It learns. So you expose it to whatever you want it to recognize. You repeat that, or you give it a high-intensity signal, and it will learn. It will learn both by intensity and by repetition, just like we learn. So does that mean that ultimately, if we push this technology a lot further, say to, to 20 years or, or so, would we be able to model a whole human brain? Yes, I would like to think that we can. The, um, one of the ap- applications that people are looking at is to download the entire human brain, to look at every synapse in the human brain and download that information into an artificial system. At the moment, the technology doesn't exist. But in 20 years' time or 10 years' time from now, it may, uh, we may be able to scan a living brain without too much damage and copy that information into something like this chip because at the moment, the computer to contain that information doesn't exist. Do you think you'd be able to scan a frozen brain or would it have to be a living brain with outputs for a chip to read? Uh, the brain is a bit like a, like a computer. The moment you switch it off, all programs disappear. All data disappears. So at the moment of death, people's intelligence that has been learned over a lifetime immediately starts deteriorating within minutes. So you would have to be very quick to snap free somebody at, at the moment of death to preserve the, uh, the state of the synapses. Well, there are people working on things like that with the neural archives and the chronics people. Mm-hmm. But obviously yes. they're going to have to be I think they'll be paying very close attention to your work. Yes, yes. <laughs> the uh, the scanners that are that are available at the moment don't have the resolution. You would need to you need to scan a brain at molecular level to find out the composition and the level of, of, of neurotransmitters in the synapses. To do that, take a machine with something like a forty tesla magnetic field, very which powerful, would very likely fry the brain of a person who is exposed to it. Not so much because of the heat developed by the machine, but as we're scanning the brain, the ion in the brain would uh, react to the uh, to the magnetic field. So while we're looking into the future, if we do automate everything that we can automate and put all these people out of work, there'll be nobody left to buy the things that we're making in the factories. How do we redistribute all this wealth we're creating so that we keep an economy and a society going? Yes, that's a, that's a good point. The uh, one way to distribute health, the wealth of the, of, of the, uh, of the that are generated by the robots would be to uh, would be to, to um, uh, have ownership, so that people own part of the robots or, or own multiple robots, so that the wealth that's generated by these robots is distributed to the people who own them. Terrific. So the last problem we have in this this fantastic future then is. 
if these devices are emulating brains so well, could they become self-aware? Yes. I would think that if, uh, if, if there's sufficient complexity, so sufficient neurons and, and synapses, the system would become self-aware. And then perhaps they need to have rights. Uh, that would defeat the purpose. If, uh, if we're looking at robotic rights, uh, Asimov has written about that, if we give machines rights, then what good is it to have a machine? Because then they become a human being. Yes. So we need to have them smart enough to be useful, but not so smart that we're concerned about their welfare. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely true. If we um, create... The, the temptation is always to create something that's, that's smarter than a human being. Say that has something that has 200 billion neurons. Whether it will be smarter than a human being is a question because a, a whale has got 200 billion neurons. So does an elephant. They're not very, very smart. Not compared to us. I've never seen a, a, an elephant do integrals or any other mathematics. So it's very much a question of brain structure rather than number of, of, of neurons. A parrot, like the African grey that uh, Dr. Pepperberg um, trained, was, smart, was smarter than an elephant, while they only have like 40 billion neurons. Bring things back to the present. When do you expect you might get the first of the chips running off the production line? We have a development path that's 14 months from where we are now. That's 14 months after we get the funding. I've been speaking to people in, in Silicon Valley. The, um, the only thing that they, they have looked at the technology, they said, okay, this is at least five years ahead of what everybody else is doing. So what we uh, once we have the funding, 14 months, we have the first brain chips out in the market. Wonderful. Yes, if we're looking at energy use, uh, we calculated the uh, energy use of the, uh, the 10,000 neuron chip, and we came to about 1.4 watts. This is because the, uh, the chip is, um, even though it's, there's a lot of transistors in the chip, they don't switch all the time. It's not like a microprocessor that's constantly chewing around and, uh, and fetching instructions. These things are basically just waiting for a pulse. So, because they're not blocked, the energy use is very low. And to our surprise, when we did the calculation on the uh, 50,000 neuron chip in 28 nanometers, it was almost identical. It was 1.7 watts for the entire chip, which is not much. Well, how much does uh, average CPU for on a computer use? Uh, 40, 50, 60 watts, <laughs> depending on how you clock it. So this is 60 times less? Yes, yes. It's, it's less and it's, uh, it's more powerful in, in brain emulation than than a Pentium. A Pentium would have to speed up 4,000 times to do the same task. The thing is that as we increasing number of, of neurons, it doesn't seem like the power goes up in the same way. And the reason is that the I.O. pads on the chip is what takes up most of the power. The chip itself doesn't use much. It's locked, locked at the very, even the, uh, the registers that count down between the uh, between pulses uh, are clocked at 17 kilohertz, which is very, very low. And the rest of the chip is not blocked at all. Oh, one last thing about the chips that I, I recall is that with a traditional CPU, traditional computer chip, if there's anything wrong on the chip, pretty much most of the chip starts to fail, yes. if not fail completely. But I understand with the brain chip, it's a bit, bit more organic, that they're all, well, all the neurons are parallel processing, they're not centrally controlled. That's right. Each neuron is a processor or is a unit in itself. It if it fails, 
information simply arrives against uh, around the, the neuron in exactly the same way as it happens in the brain. We can lose millions of neurons in a day, and we do, and uh, we carry on as, as, not, as if nothing has happened. So in this case, the chip also just carries on as if nothing's happened. The, uh, there might be a little bit of information lost if the neuron fails, but for the rest, it just carries on. So, Peter, you've got a book about your brain chips. What is the name of the book and where do people go to find out more about it? Yes, I've, I've written a book uh, that introduces the technology and it, it also uh, talks about the biological model and how we, how we um, uh, use the biological model to, to fashion this chip. The, um, the website is, uh, the, yes, the, the book's website is uh, higherintelligencebook.com. Uh, you can also find all, all sort of information on there about the uh, about the ongoing pro uh, project, uh, about the ongoing uh, development of uh, of this chip. Uh, there's a blog uh, site where you can also also react to articles I've written, and there's more up-to-date information on the on the on the uh, on the website. So it, uh, higherintelligencebook.com. And the title of the book? It's higher intelligence. So uh, don't forget to put the book in. It's not just higher intelligence, but higherintelligencebook.com. Otherwise, you get to the photography website. Well, Peter Vandermeid, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you. That was Peter Vandermeid talking about his brain chip and artificial intelligence. You can read more in his book, Higher Intelligence, at higherintelligencebook.com. And look to diffusionradio.com for video and links. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like our Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion is funded solely by the fixed income Bank of VN, which lacks any kind of business model. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or if you'd like to sponsor the show. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.